0: From God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Amen. You know, some of Martin Luther's greatest insights into the books of the Bible can be found in his introductions to those books. As he introduces his writings uh, of the New Testament as a whole, he offers an introduction that's worth repeating on this uh, first Sunday of a brand new church year, the first Sunday of a new Advent season. It's a time we can turn our faces from the plague that's holding us down to the celebration. That's sure to lift us up in just a few weeks. The fulfillment of God's plan of salvation for mankind through the birth of his own son into our world. Jesus, who took on our flesh to become our savior and our redeemer. Listen to just a part of what, what Luther writes. The notion must be given up that there are four gospels and only four evangelists. Gospel is a Greek word and means in Greek a good message, good tidings, good news, a good report, which one sings and tells with gladness. For example, when David overcame the great Goliath, there came among the Jewish people the good report and encouraging news that their terrible enemy had been struck down and that they had been rescued and given joy and peace. And they sang and danced and were glad for it. Thus, this gospel of God, or New Testament, is a good story and report, sounded forth into all the world by the apostles, telling of a true David who strove with sin, death, and the devil, and overcame them, and thereby rescued all those who were captive in sin, afflicted with death, and overpowered by the devil. Without any merit of their own, he made them righteous, gave them life, and saved them, so that they were given peace and brought back to God and are glad forever, if only they believe firmly and remain steadfast in faith. The gospel then is nothing but preaching about Christ, Son of God and of David, true God and man, who by his death and resurrection has overcome for us the sin, death, and hell of all men who believe in him. In this historical year, we're going to be spending the next Sundays leading up to Christmas delving into some of that history that that led up to the first Christmas. And we're going to do it by looking uh, at the Lord's genealogy from the book of Matthew. There are actually two versions of Jesus' ancestry in the Gospels, uh, one in the first chapter of Matthew and a second one in the third chapter of Luke. Each evangelist was writing with a particular audience in mind. Luke's genealogy uh, is given at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It follows his baptism in uh, the Jordan River uh, by John. Immediately after, remember, the heavens were opened and uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus bodily in the form of a dove. And a voice from heaven, a voice of God the Father, declared, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then Luke works backwards from Jesus' earthly ancestors, um, starting from Joseph going all the way back to Adam, and to God. Now Luke's gospel was written for a, a kind of a mixed audience, for Gentiles who were wondering what all the fuss was about, and also for the ongoing teaching of experienced believers. He wanted to show that Jesus had come to save all people from all nations, because we all come from a common beginning, don't we? Back in the Garden of Eden. Now, Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy that works forward from. Abraham to Joseph. He wants to show a Jewish audience the Lord's Judean roots in his desire to present Jesus as a fulfillment of the, the, uh, the God's promises to Abraham and the prophecies. Although Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, as his legal father, he brought Jesus into the royal line of David in accordance with the prophecies of God. While neither list is necessarily complete, they share a striking similarity. Both of them include the good, uh, the bad, and the ugly. Over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at some of these ancestors and talking about just why they're included and why it's important as we see God sort of weaving a path through the Old Testament right up to Mary and Joseph in the New Testament. And no person was as key to that plan as King David. Matthew begins his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, it's interesting, it's been said, it's actually been demonstrated that your gut feeling has always been true, that you really do deserve to be bowed down to, not as a god, but as a royalty, sort of, sort of bowed down to. A famous 1990, 1999 study by Yale uh, statistician Joseph Chang showed that if you went back far enough, about 32 generations, some 900 years or so, you'd find that everyone alive today shares a common ancestor. And if, if you just stay in Europe, that number drops to, to just 600 years. Research built on that study found that virtually everyone in Europe is descended from royalty, uh, specifically Charlemagne, who ruled Western Europe from uh, 8, 7, or 768 through 814. And by default, then anyone in the Americas descended from Europeans is included as well. And because there's been so much intermarriage between cultures over the centuries, um, so is just about everyone else. Now uh, You don't have to worry. That doesn't mean uh, England sees you as a, a threat to their throne. The MI6 won't be sending out a, a double knot agent to remove you from the, the uh, picture. Uh, but it is likely you have a little royal blood throwing through your, flowing through your veins from uh, some royal in some country somewhere. Uh, in 2003, a groundbreaking study showed that one in every 200 men worldwide is a direct descendant of the 12th century Mongolian emperor Genghis Khan. Uh, hence your temper, maybe. And on top of that, Swiss geneticists claim that half of all the men living in Western Europe are related to the Egyptian pharaoh. King Tut, including 70% of men in Great Britain. You have to wonder, don't you, if that has something to do with our fascination and, uh, and the, the, uh, the huge success of all these, these uh, TV series that have been produced by, by cable channels about the, the struggles and the triumphs of the, the rich and royal and the, the heroes, historical and fictional, uh, that Game of Thrones played all down through history. David is considered the great hero of Judah and Israel. He ruled over a united kingdom, and he did it mostly well, and as did his son, King Solomon. But there are other kings in Jesus' family tree. So why does Matthew refer to him as the son of David? Well, why not the son of Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah, who was really not without his own issues, especially vanity, but remembered as a pretty good king overall? Uh, not so much his son. Manasseh reigned for 55 years, the longest of any Jewish monarch. But he was also its greatest idolater. He persecuted the prophets. He was the one who was said to have murdered Isaiah by stuffing him into a hollow log and then having it sawn in two. Um, he revived all the pagan abominations that his father had, had destroyed. He even brought back human sacrifice in the dark arts said that he even sacrificed one of his own sons. God allowed uh, Syria to defeat Manasseh and led him off into exile into Babylon. There's even an ancient monument that shows the Assyrian king leading two captives who uh, appear to have hooks or rings through their lips. The inscription says, I transported into Assyria men and women innumerable. I counted among the vassals of my realm 12 kings of Syria, Beyond the mountains, Balan, king of Tyre, Manasseh, king of Judah. Well, the only reason Manasseh was, lasted as long as he did was the tribute he was paying to his enemy. He was paying for protection instead of trusting in God. The book of Second Chronicles tells us that while he was captive, he came to his senses and he prayed in repentance to God, and God was so moved by his prayer that he allowed him to return to Jerusalem realizing now that the Lord was the only true God. He removed all the idols. He led the people back to God. But he still remembered more as the worst of the worst uh, than for his eventual return to God and God's mercy. So if he's a king that many people would prefer to forget, why did Matthew even include him? Because he wants to remind us that Jesus came to save and redeem us all. From the greatest heroes to the worst failures. It reminds us that Jesus' purpose in coming to earth wasn't just to return, at all, to return Judah and Israel to their former glory. He came to establish an eternal king that was founded not on might and power, but on mercy and grace. He came to rescue all people whose hearts were stained with sin. Two times in the Bible, David is called a man after God's own heart. Think about that. What greater compliment could there ever be than being called a man or a woman after God's own heart? It was first spoken by Samuel the prophet, who had once been a judge of Israel himself, and he brought God's word to Israel's very first king, King Saul, the word that God wasn't too happy with him anymore. At the end of his rule was in sight for disobeying God. He told them at this time, <clears throat> the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And from that point on, Saul's days were numbered. The man Samuel spoke of would be a young shepherd boy named David. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in the synagogue in Antioch. And Paul's relating the story of God's faithfulness to his people from going back to the very beginning. And he reminds them about the judges God gave, God gave them to rule and, and after that, at their request, uh, a king. You know, they wanted a king because all the pagan nations around them had a king. And so God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And this is what Paul says. They asked for a king, and God gave them Saul for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So it all ties together. Paul wraps it all up. Samuel had anointed David secretly as Israel's next king uh, while Saul was still on the throne. David had even fought under King Saul. Remember, he killed the the giant Goliath uh, uh, with the, the Philistine champion with just a sling and a stone. And from that time on, he began to make a name for himself, by leading Saul's armies to to many victories, and so many that the people began to sing praises of David, uh, even more than they did about Saul, and Saul got so jealous that he tried to kill David. But as God willed, David eventually became king. The question was: Did being a man after God's heart make him a perfect king, or even a perfect man? Uh, and the answer is no on both counts. Uh, he made a lot of mistakes, but his biggest failure was falling into adultery. The affair he had with Bathsheba, the girl next door, had led to her pregnancy. To cover it up, he recalled his, her husband Uriah from the wars, and uh, hoping they'd spend time together. But Uriah was so loyal to his men who were still battling, he would sleep on the, like on the front porch. Uh, so David had to send him back into battle. And he arranged to send him into the, the heat of a, a great battle where he knew that Uriah would be, surely be killed. And he was killed. And it was really uh, no less than, than a, a covered up murder so that David could take that man's wife as his own. Well, David's court prophet, Nathan, a dramatic uh, moment confronts him with that sin. And the child of that union eventually dies. In his grief, David realized that he needed a shepherd too. He wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 51, where he acknowledges that he was sinful from the time he was conceived. You know, The powerful and popular King David would bow before God in repentance, begging him not to send him away from his presence or, or, or take the Holy Spirit uh, from him. It, even the man after God's own heart, The former shepherd who had killed a bear and a lion to protect his flock turned out to be easy prey for the the lion who was Satan, uh, roaring around looking for someone to devour. He learned the hard way that he needed an even greater shepherd of his own to strike down the devil. The man who had everything he could imagine and to whom God would have even given more had had not been content with what he received and it almost destroyed him. And yet God forgave him, and he restored him by forgiving him all his sins for the sake of his descendant who was to come, Jesus. In chapter 22 of his gospel, Matthew relates a confrontation between Jesus and some Pharisees. Jesus asked them, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Of course, they were still waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, but they knew about him from from their, their, their Old Testament. They answered, oh, He's the son of David. But then Jesus responds by quoting from one of David's own Psalms, asking him, How is it that David, in the Spirit, uh, led by the Spirit, uh, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And he asks, If David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? And they couldn't answer him. And the Pharisees today still can't. There's only one way. And it's clear that the acclaimed King David believed that his own descendant would be infinitely greater than he was. One who would come to be his Lord. Peter quotes the same psalm, Psalm 110, um, in his Pentecost sermon about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This Jesus God raised up, Peter says, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. He concludes his sermon, Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. He was reminding the very people who had arranged for the Lord's crucifixion um, that this was no ordinary man. Uh, This descendant of David would be different from his father David, who had died and was buried to that day, still buried to this day. David's son, that is his descendant, was raised from the dead and ascended into the Heavenly Father's right hand. Isaiah prophesied the Messiah reigning on David's throne forever. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. While Jesus may be the son of David and the son of Manasseh according to his earthly lineage, he's an altogether different kind of king. He's the only truly righteous king whose kingdom will have no end. He's the one who comes to save the high and the mighty. The, ones who fall from their thrones, and to save the meek and the lowly who will never get close enough to even see a throne. There's no one righteous before God, not even King David. Therefore God would send one who would become our righteousness. As the prophet Jeremiah foretold, in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. But we can never forget that his righteousness that became our righteousness came at a steep price. Jesus is also the king who was crowned with a crown of thorns, covered not in beautiful uh, regal robes of purple, but with our sin and shame. He was sacrificed for the sins of his fathers, including Manasseh, including David. The Lion of Judah would become the Lamb who was slain. He was the king who took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. On that day, the inscription over his head was the only thing that would mark Jesus as a king. And he died there. You probably won't find King David in your own genealogical tree, if you, uh, even if you look really hard. But you can make the case that we're all sons and daughters of David, if you're talking about having inherited his sin and his shame. It's why the gospel good news um, is that Jesus, son of David, came to rescue all who share in David's weakness, uh, his tendency to fall away from God. And that's all of us. And so Matthew begins his gospel with a family tree that makes all families free by being rooted in God's love calling us this Advent season to remember the salvation story, to remember it and to to experience the love of God ourselves through that story, and then take it into all the world. God bless our Advent journey as we prepare ourselves and our homes and our hearts to welcome the Christ child, son of David, Savior of the world. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.